Foreign Relations uh, Committee will come to order. I want to thank Deputy Secretary Higginbottom for continued service to our country and your testimony today. As chairman, one of our priorities has been to revise, revive the State Department reauthorization process, and I want to thank uh, Senator Menendez for beginning that. I think it's critical. Uh, it's a critical oversight tool and a healthy exercise to take an annual look at the authorities uh, that need updating. We passed an authorization bill out of committee unanimously last year for the first time in five years, and we hope to build upon that progress with another bipartisan bill for 2017. Like last year, our bill will focus on diplomacy programs and the nuts and bolts operations of the State Department. I know our staff has been uh, having a very, pr very productive discussions with you, and I thank you for creating that kind of tone. Uh, about these programs, and I want to thank you for your help uh, in the process, as I know your written testimony, as I read, will allude to. One area we've been studying, which I know the ranking member is also interested in, is how the U.S. can use its influence to affect change at the U.N., particularly in the areas of sexual exploitation and abuse by U.N. peacekeepers, and with regard to the peacekeeping budget in general. Reports keep rolling in of UN peacekeepers and personnel abusing the very people they're charged with protecting, which is truly horrifying, and a blight on the good we're trying to do in those countries. Uh, more than a blight, I would say. These bad apples create uh, operate with impunity because they know that there are no mechanisms in place to bring them to justice, and we need to use our influence at the UN to fight this impunity, to insist on on-site court-martials, uh, standing claims commissions for each of the peacekeeping operations, refusal to deploy peacekeepers from countries that do not uh, take charges of abuse seriously, and whatever else it takes to root out this incredible abuse. The U.S. now pays close to 30 percent of the U.N. peacekeeping budget, which is more than other permanent members of the Security Council combined, uh, and I would not call that burden sharing, and I think there's consensus around here that we'd like to look at that. I know the State Department doesn't enjoy being saddled with this uh, bill either, bill from the UN. But I would like to, uh, but I'd like to know that uh, I would like to know what you're doing actively to to create change. Um, you know, we talk about these things, um, but we concern ourselves sometimes that there's really not an active engagement uh, trying to change the peacekeeping assessment formula such that it captures a country's actual ability to contribute and eliminates bogus discounts that relieve certain countries of paying their fair share. I'm also concerned about the imperative systemic issues with improper handling of classified information at the State Department that has come to light recently. And if some of your cleared employees are struggling with proper handling and safeguarding of classified information, which appears to be the case, uh, we view it as our duty to set up training and accountability systems necessary to fix this problem. I'm also interested in how you incentivize foreign service officers to serve at less desirable posts. Uh, my impression is that extra pays that the extra pays foreign service officers receive at these posts are determined by uh, not to be too pejorative, but bureaucrats in Washington, and do not reflect officers' actual preferences about where they serve. It seems to me that it would be much more effective and transparent to combine the various extra pays into one rate for each post that takes into account the popularity of that post. And finally, I hope you'll address the confusing and potentially unsustainable consular fee structure, which essentially bets on continued growth of demand for U.S. visas to fund our other consular uh, services. 
I know you didn't design the system this way. It was created ad hoc by statute, but we're looking at ways to redesign the system so that it's more efficient and transparent, and I hope you'll work with us on that also. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. I know a big part of an authorization bill, and certainly this is something that's important to Senator Cardin, but also us, is you have some priorities that you would like to see put in place. We look forward to hearing about those so we can work constructively towards a, a good authorization bill. Thank you for your testimony. And now I'll turn to our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, well thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, let me thank Secretary Hickenbottom for her attendance here today, but more importantly, for her service to our country. We very much appreciate the, the work that you're doing on behalf of, of America. And, and I want to thank uh, our chairman, Senator Corker, for not just this hearing, but his commitment for our committee and for the United States Senate and for the Congress to carry out our responsibilities on the reauthorization of the State Department or the authorizations for the State Department. Mr. Chairman, if I'm correct, I don't think there's a member of this committee that was in the United States Senate the last time we passed uh, an authorization bill. Well, so, unless you were serving with Abe Lincoln. I don't <laughs> know what <it> <laughs> well, it's been a while since we passed an authorization bill. It's even been a longer time. Uh, I think you have to go back to the 1980s when we reauthorized the USAID program. Right. So uh, uh, this is something we, we need to do. And in certain respects, we are hamstringing the State Department by our failure to pass an authorization bill. You mentioned outdated laws, and that's certainly true with the consular fee service issues. That was developed a long time ago when the services were a lot different than they are today. And it, and it requires uh, um, uh, an update uh, of that authorization. Or we, we could talk about the, the current concerns on overseas comparability pay. That's an issue that this committee needs to speak to and needs uh, the Congress needs to speak to. There are many areas where Congress needs to, uh, to act uh, on, uh, on uh, diplomatic security issues. We, we did have a bill that we worked on. We didn't get it done but it should be included in the authorization bill. We have workforce diversity issues that this committee has spoken about, and uh, I, I hope the, the, the Secretary will talk about that. Uh, there's still far from where I would like to see uh, opportunity in America reflected within the, uh, our foreign service. Um, there are important areas that the Chairman has already mentioned, the United Nations reform issues. It's, it's controversial, I will admit that, but we need to, we need to deal with, with, with these issues. Uh, I'm not placing blame as to why we haven't been able to get this done. And uh, I, I'm very much working with the chairman to see whether we can find a path where we can reach the finish line and start, uh, I hope, uh, a process that every Congress, there will be a, a State Department authorization bill considered by the Congress and acted on by the Congress, recommended by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Mr. Chairman, we spent a lot of time in this committee. I don't know of any other committee that has more hearings, more in-depth knowledge of what's going on globally than the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. We know each of the regions. We spent a lot of time on each of the regions. We know the State Department. We know what's being done in the State Department. We are the committee that should be recommending to the United States uh, Senate the policies for the State Department. It shouldn't be the appropriators. It shouldn't be the armed services. It should be the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I think this hearing is a good first opportunity for us to explore how we, in fact, can carry out that responsibility. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. If I could, I, I don't normally do this, but uh, I, we have two outstanding senators from Georgia. Senator Perdue has taken the lead on the authorization bill, but he's also taking the lead uh, on our side uh, on the budget process. And just for what it's worth, 
uh, I hope he won't be offended, but has made comments very much like what you're saying, and that is it, it really is ridiculous the way uh, appropriators that I respect greatly, I really do, but they meet for about five hours mm -hmm. and determine the budget uh, on all these programs where, in essence, we spend the entire time we're here looking at what's happening, and I do think the authorization process is one that's very, very important and yet uh, way underutilized. So thank you for saying that. And uh, I want to thank, uh, again, the, the uh, Deputy Secretary of State for Management and Resources, the Honorable Heather Higginbottom. Uh, thank you for being here and sharing your thoughts. We appreciate your service to our country. I think you've uh, done this before and understand that you can summarize in five minutes, if you wish, and your written testimony without uh, without opposition will be entered into the record in full. So thank you again for being here and cooperating with us on this matter. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today regarding State Department authorization. As Secretary Kerry has said, American leadership is not just a button that we push in time of emergency. We must be backed by resources and authorities. So we're committed to working with the committee on a bill that provides a strong foundation for the State Department and enhances our efforts to be more effective and efficient. Today, I will highlight a few of the authorities that we believe are critically important. And I wanna thank members of the committee for your partnership on several of these issues. They include permanent authority to contract local guards with the best value firms to better protect our people and infrastructure, administrative subpoena authority for the Bureau of Diplomatic Security to enhance their efforts to counter passport and visa fraud, permanent authorities to provide greater flexibility to set fees for border crossing, fraud prevention and detection, and passport and visa surcharges, which would support our execution of consular services, authorities to pay our UNESCO contribution, as well as to pay our United Nations peacekeeping dues at the assessed rate, which would help us avoid accruing arrears and enable our continued leadership. And overseas comparability pay authority to better support and retain our workforce by leveling the playing field for overseas pay. The committee has also indicated its interest in hearing from the department on other issues, which I will briefly address now and look forward to discussing further. First, the international community relies on United Nations peacekeeping missions to advance our collective global security. The State Department is committed to UN reform, and we are working to ensure other countries pay their fair share of UN budgets, especially larger developing countries like China, which is now the second largest peacekeeping cost contributor. We recognize the value of peacekeeping missions, but we are appalled by continuing allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse by peacekeepers. The United States has been a driving force behind the UN's zero tolerance policy and will continue to push the UN to bring an end to abuses and hold perpetrators accountable. We are directly pressing troop and police contributing countries named for the first time in last week's United Nations report to promptly and credibly investigate allegations of sexual exploitation and abuse and where appropriate to prosecute offenders. Second, the United States faces not only risks to our physical security but also risks to the security of our information. Since the breach of our unclassified email system in 2014, we have aggressively worked to enhance our cybersecurity. We have strengthened the way our users access the systems, the security testing of our networks and applications, and the training of our staff on the threats that we face. 
Third, responding to Freedom of Information Act requests is an important element of our transparency efforts. And while the volume of FOIA requests to the department has increased by 300% since 2008, our resources to address them have not kept pace. That's why we have requested a 77% increase in this year's budget for FOIA. <clears throat> and in addition, Secretary Kerry has appointed a transparency coordinator who is spear spearheading the department's efforts to improve its systems and processes. And finally, our work to advance American leadership and diplomacy around the world is only as strong as our people. To ensure we have the right people in the right places at the right time, we are adopting policies and tools to support our workforce, enhance leadership at all levels, and expand innovation. Mr. Chairman, as discussed in more detail in my written testimony for the record, a strong State Department authorization bill will put the department on a robust footing as we pursue security and prosperity for the American people. I look forward to working with you on this important endeavor. Thank you, and I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, thank you very much for being here. Let me uh, just, all of us have read the stories in the Washington Post and certainly had testimony here about what's happening with uh, peacekeepers, which again is abhorrent and uh, hard to believe that we're participating and trying to help people, and yet uh, they're being taken advantage of uh, this terrible report uh, regarding the DRC recently. What is it that we can actually do? I, I fear sometimes that, that we want, we have other priorities at the UN. We don't want to rock the boat unnecessarily. It just doesn't appear to me that, that, that we're really laying in the railroad tracks on this issue. And I, I wonder if you would tell me maybe that I'm wrong and what we are doing to, to actively cause changes to occur. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, first, we share your outrage. This is appalling behavior, and we have been very active in the UN to try to address it. Uh, in the report that the Secretary General issued on Friday for the first time, they've named the countries of alleged violators of sexual uh, exploitation and abuse, which is a policy we've been pressing them to do. And as a result of that, we have already directed our ambassadors and those affected countries to go in and demand a rapid investigation and prosecution uh, where appropriate. So we've been pushing that for a while. We're pleased they've finally done it. We've also been supportive in pressing the UN to suspend reimbursements for the personnel who are uh, alleged um, to have committed these abuses so they're not being compensated, as well as to repatriate contingents of peacekeepers where there's a trend of abuse. And the UN has taken that action uh, once already with a DRC uh, contingent. We're also have pressed the UN and they're moving forward on establishing sexual exploitation and abuse task forces within each peacekeeping mission so we can ensure that the leadership is focused, that there's training and engagement uh, on this. So we, are taking, uh, we have taken several steps. We'll continue to take more, and this is a very top priority for us. Where are we on the on-site court-martial so we know that justice is being served then and they're not going back to their home countries and never, seeing being, never being seen again. And this would be court-martials, by the way, by the countries that are involved, not by some outside group, but where are we on that? So th that's correct, uh, Mr. Chairman. We are pressing them to rapidly um, convene those tribunals. Uh, it, on a sort of country-by-country -country basis, we have to assess what capabilities and capacity they have and work with them to develop it. But that is a priority for us and something that we're working with the contributing police and troop contributing nations on. 
the lower U.S. assessment that I know you spoke to earlier and, and I did and Ben did in, in opening comments, but uh, what are we doing? Again, this is another area I feel like that we let it pass because we have other priorities, but what are we doing to, we've got a period of time now to lower the assessment. What are we doing actively to, to get things in the right place? I mean, we have members of the UN Security Council that are not paying their fair share. There's some bogus formula that's put together because of what they are as a country and what their status is that keeps that from being the case. And, and what are we doing to prevent that in the future? Mr. Chairman, um, two pieces. First, we've been working with the UN and uh, over a period of years to reduce the cost of the peacekeeping missions. And over the past several years, we have been able to reduce the cost per peacekeeper by 17%. In the latest uh, proposal for peacekeeping missions, the overall amount has been reduced by $200 million. So we're continuing to press on the overall costs. Likewise, we are working very hard if, at the UN. If I could interfere, sure. just, you know, most, many of the countries that send troops there actually make money off of it. Uh, they make money off of it. And uh, in most cases, they're actually being, you know, they're paying far above what it actually costs them, and yet countries self-report their cost, which is ridiculous. Um, you know, it's, it reminds me of the LIBOR scandal, okay, where people were self-reporting, but, but what, uh, what are we doing to, to have some accountability there? Because we know, again, many of these countries see it as a profit-making uh, uh, issue. Go ahead. Mr. Chairman, we have been pressing the UN both in the general UN budget as well as in the peacekeeping sphere to improve transparency and accountability, and we'll continue that engagement and work. And, and to your previous comment about the contributions of other countries, we've pressed hard to deal with the, the credit issue, um, and we'll continue that work. And, and we are pleased to see China and Russia and some of the other countries significantly increasing the amount that they are paying toward the peacekeeping missions, but that's work we need to continue to engage in and would like to, to work with you to figure out the best ways we can do that. I notice when all of us travel extensively, uh, fortunately, I mean, uh, people on this committee take their job seriously and spend a lot of time overseas on pay. Uh, just, I want to state that I think our people should be well paid. I think our foreign service officers are doing the Lord's work around the country, uh, around the world, trying to make sure that we pursue U.S. interests. So just, I want to get that out on the front end. At the same time, I do hear them saying, you know, uh, and we have lots of private conversations with them, as you can imagine, that, you know, coming back to Washington is a pay cut, okay? And, and so we have, this, we have this foreign pay issue, and yet most of them believe that, that you know, the higher cost of living here in Washington and the fact that their housing is not paid for is actually a pay cut. Um, and so are, are we really dealing with the issue of, of uh, foreign service and what they're paid in these other countries in the appropriate way with the understanding that most of them would prefer to be overseas than here as it relates to what they're paid? Mr. Chairman, um, thank you. I think it's, it's quite customary for the Foreign Service officers to want to be deployed overseas um, where they most enjoy doing their work. But uh, with respect to the allowances and the, the cost of living, the hardship, um, those are based on uh, exceptional cost of serving overseas, the, the, the increased cost of goods and services, um, hardship, uh, living in a dangerous place, living in a place where there's a lot of crime, where there's health risks. Um, those, that category of, of hardship differential is, is an incentive payment to yeah. encourage people to take those riskier and more complicated assignments. And the cost of living adjustments are intended to ensure people um, can obtain goods and services uh, comparably to a, 
the way they would in Washington, D.C. So we review those regularly, and we think the allowances and differentials are appropriate and important, both to provide compensation as well as incentive to get to some of our harder-to-staff. Is there a more rational way of arriving at what that is? I mean, it just it seems to me that we've got a small group of people back here in Washington that set these various differentials, and they may not be based on the realities that exist on the ground. I would certainly be very pleased, Mr. Chairman, to talk with you about different ways of approaching this. Though the, the process is managed in Washington, it's done with input from post. So whether it's assessing the conditions on the ground with respect to danger, public health, uh, some of the other conditions, that's with input from post, and it, it comes to Washington. The cost of living adjustment, we have a survey that goes out every couple of years that looks at the specific costs of goods, goods and services in those countries. So it's managed centrally, but it really benefits from a lot of input uh, at post. And then lastly, um, the ranking member and myself have had numbers of conversations. Um, we've gone down to the SCIF together to, to get a sense of what has been occurring at the State Department relative to, to emails. We've gone out of our way to make sure that uh, this committee doesn't politicize an issue at a time when that shouldn't be done. But would you agree that some type of training and some type of uh, systematic checks needs to occur within the department to make sure that classified information is being handled in an appropriate way? The department takes its responsibility to protect sensitive information very carefully, very seriously, and we do do a lot of training. Um, as part of the most recent process we concluded just a week ago in the release of Secretary Clinton's emails, we're going to conduct a lessons learned process, both in how we process that and some of the issues, how, how we process those emails and some of the issues that, that arose. But we do have robust training, um, both when someone enters the department, just so they understand the type of information they'll see and why that might be of interest to an adversary or, or someone, uh, someone with, a, with, a, with an interest that's not in the United States' uh, interest. But also, as you get uh, security clearance, as you're allowed to um, uh, review and handle classified information. So we do do a lot, but we certainly look at what's working. And is that new? Is that training new? It's not new, Mr. Chairman. We've had training for a long, a long time, and we adapt. For example, uh, I get locked out of my computer, as does every other State Department employee, if I don't take an annual cybersecurity awareness course. So I literally can't get on. I have to take it. It takes a few hours. So we're adapting as we see different threats and we provide different levels of training. I'd like to pursue that further with you in, a, in another setting. Thank Absolutely. you, Senator Cardin. Well, you know, Mr. Chairman, on, that, on the last point, I, I thank you because we do share the, the same uh, responsibility of this committee to oversight the State Department's handling of information. And uh, as has been pointed out, the transition to a, an electronic uh, transfer of information requires a different way of handling material. And uh, I look forward to working with the chairman. This is not a problem of one administration. It goes back several administrations. And there's no uh, uh, information that there's been state secrets that have been uh, disclosed, but we do need a, a more efficient way to handle sensitive information. So I look forward to, to working with the, the chairman uh, carrying out the responsibility of our committee. Uh, Madam Secretary, uh, we've been, um, through the last 10 to 20 years, there's been an incredible uh, change in attitude about the, uh, from Americans in support of our diplomacy and development assistance programs. When I first came to Congress, I think it had been very difficult for us to pass a foreign operations appropriation bill. Now, uh, that bill becomes, in some respects, a driver for other issues getting done, that the American people understand that 
the modest investment we make, less than 1% of the budget, uh, is, is very important for national security. So I think it's really ideal for us to be able to put together a State Department authorization bill for passage, and uh, we do look forward to working with the administration in that regard. There's one part of your budget that's going to make it more difficult for us, and I mentioned it to Secretary Kerry, and that is why you are using OCA funds uh, to fund core parts of the State Department's commitments. I don't know how you can, how we transition to a sustainable support for your mission when we're using OCA funds that won't be there. So can you just briefly explain how you intend to make sure the legacy uh, of your leadership provides the resources necessary to carry out this important function of government? Yes, thank you very much, Senator. We share the concern um, that uh, an increasing percentage of our resources are funding, funded through contingency operations. The Bipartisan Budget Act that was passed last year and set the parameters for both the 16 appropriations process and the 17 um, included increasing the percentage of our budget that would be funded as OCO. Um, that reduces our base funding and it skews to a certain extent what's funded where. And while we are, uh, we've agreed to the budget deal, of course, that the President signed and we're adhering to it, we do have concerns about what that means going forward. And we would like to see our truly enduring, our, our base costs, our ongoing operations fund, funded in a base at a sufficiently high level to enable us to conduct our missions and to preserve the contingency operations for um, short-term uh, exceptional events. I think that it's necessary to have contingency funding for state and aid going forward, but it should be rationalized from where we are today, and, and I hope that will be uh, a process that we can engage in with Congress going forward. That sounds rational, but when you have base core programs funded through contingency funds, that makes it difficult to see how that's going to be transitioned off when you know how difficult it is to get other funds. Uh, it's something we will have to deal with in an authorization bill, so I just urge you to, to look at the long-term sustainability of your missions as core functions and funded as core functions, not as con contingent fun functions. Uh, I sh uh, agree with uh, Senator Corker in that as I travel and meet the people that are in foreign service, they're incredible, and uh, they deserve the, the full support and thanks of the American people and our political system. So I strongly support um, uh, their um, compensation and strongly support uh, their having the resources necessary. But when I look at the leadership in our foreign service, and I look at the pipelines for how we are developing future leaders, it does not represent to me the demographic changes of America. And I want to know what uh, you are doing uh, to make sure that we carry out our commitment to have the face of America representative of the people of America. Thank you, Senator. Uh, the diversity of our workforce is a very important priority for the Secretary, for me. We included it in the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review that, that we issued um, last year, shortly after I was here, uh, elevating it as a priority for senior leadership in the department. Um, we have increased in our FY17 budget our resources devoted for recruiting and retaining a diverse workforce by 50%. And one of the core elements, aspects of that is increasing by 50% the Pickering and Wrangell Fellows, which have been an effective way to ensure we have a qualified and more diverse workforce. 
One of the key priorities from my perspective as I look at the data and do the analysis of our workforce, in particular the Foreign Service, is ensuring that as we bring in a more diverse workforce, we have support to retain and put on a path to senior leadership positions that more diverse workforce. And so some of the resources that we're asking for in the budget are to um, expand some mid-level career development programming. We've just uh, contracted with the Cox Foundation to do a review of our retention and mentoring programs, which we hear from our personnel are critically important. And we want to know that we're using our resources effectively and targeting them in the right way. I think it's very important that this be done in a very open, transparent way. So I'm going to ask, with, with the chairman's uh, help, that you keep our staffs actively informed as to the, the process that you're using, how transparent it is, how you're reaching out in order for recruitment, et cetera, so that we're fully engaged with you in this effort on diversity. And I hope we would have your cooperation. Absolutely. We would welcome that opportunity, Senator. And I should also mention that Secretary Kerry has asked all of his assistant secretary level or above officials to do a domestic recruiting trip coordinated with uh, by our diplomats and residents so that we're targeting the right institutions in the right parts of the country and using what tools we have in addition to additional uh, budget requests uh, to do that kind of outreach. Thank you. Lastly, let me um, mention an area where I think the, the allocation of resources are not adequate um, to meet the challenges we have, and that is democracy funding and anti-corruption efforts. Uh, Every place I travel and talk to our missions, in countries that are either in transition or have challenges, they tell me, give me more money for democracy. Give me more money for more focus on anti-corruption issues. We, every dollar we get, we could, it, it produces incredible results for America's uh, mission. They just don't have enough of it. So what efforts can you suggest to us, working with you, where we can get funds allocated uh, in those parts of the, those regions that are in desperate need of democracy assistance and throughout the world on anti-corruption issues. Thank you, Senator. We, we agree that we have not been able to allocate the democracy resources the way we would like to, the way that truly aligns with our policy, in part because we have a lot of uh, crises that we're dealing with around the world and have to make trade-offs in our budget, dealing with directives and so forth. Um, but that's why we've increased funding in 17 for democracy programming. Um, we've also heard from Congress that they want to see, uh, through the appropriations process, uh, greater focus. So I'm hopeful that we can come together and be able to protect that funding. We think it's important. As we build our budget, it's a, it's a bottom-up process. We hear from post first. And this issue is particularly acute in many places, and we're very cognizant of that. Your, your point about through the appropriation process underscores the this point that Senator Perdue and Senator Corker have made. Give us the tools so we can give you the statutory authority to make uh, to be able to allocate those resources rather than depending upon an appropriation process that doesn't always work smoothly in this institution. We look forward to working with you on that. Thank you. If I could make one point before turning to uh, Senator Isaacson. Um, I know this may be uh, just uh, uh, out, of, out of bounds by some service, foreign service officers and their thinking, but to address diversity, but also to address bringing professionals in. I mean, we have a lot of folks that are aging out in foreign service. Does it make any sense to allow people who've been incredibly competent in civil society to be able to transfer in at a level that's not stamping uh, uh, visas and those kind of things? I mean, is that something that would be rational and help uh, on the front that uh, Senator Cardin was just asking about? 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. That is a, an idea that has been tested at various points, and I think we can continue to talk about and, and try to uh, figure out a way to handle that. We, we um, have, have wrestled with how to best take advantage of the contributions that we could get into the Foreign Service while also having a system that um, we sign people up and they spend their careers at the yeah. State Department and work through a, a series of different steps. So we're trying to balance both the, the culture and requirements of the Foreign Service with the, the great benefits we could get from others. Thank you. Senator Isaacson. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I want to thank you and, and Senator Cardin for mentioning our foreign diplomats overseas who really are the face of the United States. We always brag about them, but we never have a chance to point one out because they're always somewhere overseas. We got one here today. Julie Fisher, will you stand up? <laughs> this is my neighbor. <laughs> Julie's parents still live down the street from me. She grew up down the street from me. She volunteered, served America overseas in Ukraine and many of the old Soviet bloc countries. And she's pretty doggone good, Madam Secretary, because I read your brief and I had all these questions on internet security information security and FOIA request, and you covered every one of them in your opening statement. So you've got an awfully good person. But Julie, we're proud you're here today. You see why Isaac's so popular in Georgia. <laughs> I do have one point to make. Do we have any Marylanders out there that I could? <laughs> <laughs> the chairman and I went to Darfur five years ago, if I'm not mistaken, may have been six. And we got to go to, we were the second and third ever elected senators to go to Darfur and got to see firsthand the environment in which many of these refugees and people that are abused sexually and traumatized reside. And we learned that sexual trauma and sexual violence is a military tactic in many African countries and other countries around the world. So I want to underscore the chairman's comments about the sexual violence and the predators that are in some of these peacekeeping units. And we need to make sure that the on-site court-martials and the hyper take place so that that's abolished and America never stands or looks the other way when that goes on. Thank you so much, Senator, for your comments. We wholeheartedly agree. And the, both in the peacekeeping context as well as um, in, in our engagements with several African countries as we're doing um, training and trying to support good governance and democracy, uh, being very clear on what's acceptable and what's not is, is critically important. So we see it, it, as you point out, in many different contexts. And it's appalling. And, and we have to make it a, a top priority wherever we see it, including, uh, of course, in the peacekeeping missions. One last point on the reauthorization. We waited 13 years to finally reauthorize the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, and we did that last year. But edu public education in America suffered greatly by the inaction of the United States Congress. I want to underscore your comments and those of the ranking member on the need for us to reauthorize the State Department again and modernize those rules and regulations and empower them to do the job they need to do overseas. I would ask you a question, but with Julie there to give you advice, I know you're going to have the right answer, so I'm going to excuse myself and give David Perdue the chance to go ahead. Thank you so much, Senator. Thank you. Thank you so much, and thanks for your major contributions, and we're glad we violated the rules to allow you both to be on the committee, two senators from Georgia. So, <laughs> Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks, Madam Secretary. Um, I want to ask a little bit about uh, Latin America, a particular interest of mine, and I know Senator Menendez, too, is always very focused on this. First, um, the President announced a new investment in the uh, budget he proposed to take to a second chapter, Plan Colombia, as Pasa Colombia, Peace Colombia. Talk a little bit about, you know, from the State Department's view, from a resource view, the kind of return on investment that we had on the first 15 years of this investment over three administrations and how we would propose to assist Colombia in this new chapter, you know, God willing, post a ceasefire. 
Thank you, Senator, so much. I had the chance to travel to Columbia about three weeks ago with the purpose of the trip being to meet with government officials to talk about the future, uh, to talk about Bosco Colombia and understand how our resources can best be directed to assuming there's a, a peace deal, we hope soon, um, one that we can support and continue the bipartisan support we've had across administrations to help that country go into the areas that have been governed by the FARC, really a de deal with the, the narco trafficking, with the um, coca production and some of the other issues there. Um, what I heard time and again is, is an impressive understanding of what capacities the United States brings to the table that they need to do that. Mm -hmm. um, there, were, uh, there are excellent plans developed, um, um, but implementing them and understanding what capacities we bring, whether it's on the uh, military training side, uh, on the civil support for civil society side, in the alternative development, and, and of course in some of the narco-trafficking. So I, I really, my takeaway from that experience, and I think it ref it's reflected in the administration's policy, is a continuation of our engagement where we provide truly leveraging capabilities um, and working with a common vision of what success looks like. So I, I'm, I'm hopeful and, and came away from that trip both convinced that there's a lot of work to do, but that we're on the right path and have good partners in the Columbia. And the story of Colombia is not just a U.S. consistent um, interest has helped Colombia transform, but Colombia has now become a security partner to, to help with security assistance in the Northern Triangle. They've got um, peacekeepers as part of the multinational force of observers in the Sinai. They're really becoming a global force for uh, positive security in a way that is, you know, great alliance for us, but a real tribute also to their uh, commitment to peace and prosperity, prosperity outside their own borders. I agree. When I was in Central America at the end of last year, uh, especially in, in certain neighborhoods in Honduras and El Salvador, every visit that we made to see how USAID and State Department dollars were being used. There was a Colombian police officer participating yep. in the training, and uh, it was incredibly valuable to those countries. And when you look at the progress that Colombia has made over the past many years, and you look at the path that the Northern Triangle countries have to traverse, there's a lot of good learning and examples that we can draw from there. M moving to the Northern Triangle, um, in the in the two-year budget deal, then the appropriations that uh, deal we struck at year end, and really because of the Senate, the the Senate had this in the Senate side approach. The House did not, and the compromise followed the Senate version. $750 million investment in the Northern Triangle with Plan Columbia as an indication that, hey, we can have hope that this will work if we're consistent with it. The President has proposed an additional billion dollars for the Northern Triangle countries. Talk a little bit about sort of, uh, we, we've had testimony previously about the kind of pillars into which the investments will fall, but. What will our metrics be for sort of measuring whether the progress is what we, what we would hope? Thank you, Senator. The first metric we have and, and need to keep focused on are the commitments that the presidents of those three countries have made and ensuring they live up to those commitments. One of the critical elements of our strategy for Central America is ensuring that we've learned from the things we've done before, but we're also doing things differently. And that requires transparency and good governance. It, it requires alignment of resources and in, in shared priorities so that these governments are putting their own resources against our commonly shared vision of what needs to happen. Um, we are working very carefully uh, across our government within different agencies to ensure we have developed tools to measure success, to know what's working and what's not. Um, one of the, the areas that I spent a lot of time visiting when I was in the region was on the partnership between the State Department's INL Bureau and USAID 
bringing the law enforcement and the community-based programs together, both to establish trust uh, of, the, of law enforcement, but also ensure we're more, more comprehensively addressing the needs in those communities. And we're scaling that up across the region, but in large part, in large part based on an independent evaluation that showed that this strategy would be successful. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna do different monitoring and evaluation projects, we're gonna hold ourselves accountable, and we're gonna put the resources against what we know works. In staying in the region, uh, obviously there's huge concern about Zika. This is not a help hearing, but I'm curious, particularly with respect to State Department personnel in the Americas, what steps are you taking from a management standpoint to protect our people? Thank you, Senator. So first of all, obviously the greatest area risk uh, uh, population is, the, is women who are pregnant or who, are, who want to become pregnant. So just as the Pentagon has done, any personnel under chief of mission authority have the opportunity to curtail their assignments early, return to the United States, be medevaced early. Um, and we've had some, uh, some employees who have availed themselves of that will continue to message as we have so they understand what opportunities they have. We've also um, been very clear about how individuals in affected areas can protect themselves. Um, this is, as, as I'm sure you know, a difficult um, vector to control, but there are measures that, that individuals can take to protect themselves, and we're ensuring they have sufficient insect repellent and information right. and so forth. So we'll continue to do that. Good. Uh, one last issue. Um, Senator Cornyn and I took a trip about a year ago to uh, Mexico, Honduras, and Colombia, and it was interesting. The purpose of the trip didn't have anything to do with Cuba, but every head of state we met with said, you have no idea how your path toward normalization with Cuba is gonna open up other opportunities in the Americas for you. And they kind of described it as if there was a you know, fight between Uncle Sam and small Cuba, kind of we had to be on Cuba's side. And that hobbled institutions like the OAS, for example, where the US-Cuba challenge was always sort of an ankle weight uh, slowing them down. Um, I just really think the, the, the path with Cuba, and we're gonna to continue to have to challenge Cuba on human rights issues, just like we challenge all kinds of other countries we have diplomatic relations with on human rights issues. We're gonna to have to continue to focus on that. But the Americas, for our purposes these days, first, we're all Americans. We all call ourselves Americans, North, South, and Central. If there is that ceasefire in Colombia, it will be the end of war in these two hemispheres. There won't be a war, which is probably the first time in recorded history you could say that. And um, there's just enormous cultural similarities that we share. Recent electoral activities, especially in South America, have had some really promising signs about pro-small democracy, pro-human rights. There's just a lot of upside opportunities. And I would hope that we don't spend all of our time worrying about our headaches and, uh, and, and short shrift the upside opportunities that we have in our own region. And I would just really encourage the, the State Department and my colleagues on that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Appreciate your comments about Zika, and I assume that the State Department is going to be sending out notifications to travelers. The Olympics are taking place in August, uh, notifying them of concerns. Is that correct? The Centers for Disease Control issues guidance of this kind, and we disseminate it broadly across our platform. So if anyone is interested in coming to the State Department or the Embassy's website about to gather information about Brazil, they'll find that information providing the, the, the CDC's guidance. We might want to be a little more proactive than people looking at websites, but we'll talk about that. Senator Perdue. Uh, thank you. Let me echo uh, Senator Cardin, the ranking member, uh, comment this morning. I, I, I think that's at the center of, of one of our problems is that uh, we've got to coordinate uh, how we fund these uh, departments and the people who really understand these departments uh, 
and have the right uh, or responsibility of oversight need to be involved in that process. I could not agree more, and we're working to try to see how we can change that. Um, Madam Secretary, thank you for being here. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for your courtesies last week by sending over uh, Hari Satri and, uh, and Doug Pitkin. They did a great job talking about budget requests in our subcommittee. I, I just have three quick questions. One is, uh, just to put a little historical perspective on this, and let me give a little context. Uh, the way I look at it with the last seven years, and, and this is not a partisan comment, it's just a reality that we've borrowed over a third of what we spent as a federal government. And if you look at about two-thirds of our spending is mandatory. So if, if those dollars that we get in go to mandatory first, that means that every dollar we spend on defense and state and aid is fundamentally borrowed. So that means there's a, a real crisis here that we need to look at what we're doing with, with what we're spending. And the perspective is that in between 92 and 2000, uh, the state in all of its endeavors averaged about $20 billion a year in expense over that eight-year period. And then between 2000 and 2008, while we averaged 30, it went from 20 to 40. And, and a lot of that was Iraq, Afghanistan, and other things. And since then, we've, we've fallen into this level of about 50. And, and, and by the way, I have to call out that you're asking for less money this year than you asked for last year. So I have to call that out and thank you for that. So I have that observation. And, I, and, and the second observation is the fact that while that level stayed at about 50, the enduring dropped from 50 to 40 over that period of time and was filled with OCO. So we've already had, you've already answered the OCO part of that, but I have the second piece of that, and that is help me understand the responsibilities and what we're doing around the world. Um, I, I recognize we're the most philanthropic country in the world, and, and we need to maintain that position as long as we can afford it, but I'm just not sure right now the, that we shouldn't ask the question, you know, can we afford all this? And so it's incumbent on you as the budget process comes about to justify how we've gone from 20 to 40 or 30 and then now to 50. What, how, how, explain that to me just a little bit in terms of your, I know you didn't take it from 20 to 50. You've, you've been given a challenge to use 50 and you've kept it flat uh, pretty much. But um, help me with that historical perspective on how we're spending that much. So, Senator, I think you touched on a few elements of it, which are Iraq and Afghanistan, that have uh, that required increases in in our budget and require increases to to sustain our engagement there. Um, I would I would point to a couple of other factors as um, as as being those that we need to fund, and and that is that we are dealing with an increasingly complex world. If you just take the humanitarian side for a moment, we have four level three humanitarian disasters, and that's a I can't say if it's unprecedented, but it's highly unusual. And we are a very generous con contributor uh, to those crises. We also have the rise of violent extremism and terrorism in ways that are different than we saw uh, during the periods of time you're referencing. And I don't know if those numbers include supplemental funding appropriations, but we did as a regular course uh, re rely on and utilize supplementals to address the emerging crises. So I think each of those plays a role in that. But, but Senator, we'd be pleased to sort of go through in more detail some of the... Yeah, I think it would be instructive because I think this is a function that every department over the next couple of years is going to have to go through in terms of what we really can afford to do. It's a question we don't ask much up here. Um, I have a second question quickly on uh, the IG. You know, last year we, we talked privately and, and you testified about this, and I know you've been very vocal about this. But as I look at it, I'm not, I don't see a lot of progress, honestly. And so can you address the progress that you're making with that with regard to specifically the request of the IG? And I think there was no disagreement last year about 
having the IG be aware of all investigations. There are three, evidently three pathways investigations go inside state. Can you speak to that just a minute? Sure, I'd be pleased to. We have been working with the IG to identify which of the issues, which of the investigations, which type of cases they are most interested in having information about and having the ability to investigate should they choose. They, ha they can investigate anything, but, but where we narrow their focus so that the processes we have of an administrative nature, if someone wants to um, bring a civil rights case to our Office of Civil Rights, it's clear that the IG's office isn't necessarily interest, interested in that. And we're engaged in those discussions is, right Is now. the IG aware now of all of the potential um, investigations? So they are now aware. So the conversation we're having with them right now is to look across all of the different avenues people have to bring, you know, even approaching the ombudsman and say, where do you, what, inf what cases are you interested in? Defining that and then working through a process. And I won't speak for him because uh, that wouldn't be appropriate, but I do, as you know, meet regularly with him. And I think he's also pleased with the progress. And I think very soon we'll have a policy that we've agreed upon and that we can explain and make easily understandable to our employees. I think that would be important. And lastly, before my time's out, uh, I know uh, as we travel the world, as the chairman mentioned, it's one of the great uh, um, benefits of this responsibility is that you do see great Americans out there in the field. And I have to echo what everybody said. Uh, I, I just marvel at the quality of people and their dedication around the world. And I know we have to make them secure. And I, and I, I know post-Benghazi, there's been an uptick in that. There are some four major uh, embassies construction. Can you talk about embassy construction and the overruns on those, and partic particularly Islamabad, London, Singapore, places like that, where I know these are uh, billion-dollar-plus installations now. We have to have stronger um, buffer zones or offsets. Can you speak to that just a minute, please? Sure, Senator. Um, you touched on one of the, the issues that's most important when we think about embassy construction, and that's building facilities that are safe and secure for our personnel. And post the, the bombings in the 90s and more recent events, uh, we continually review and look at what our requirements are and make sure that we can do that. And in places where it's more dangerous to operate, uh, those costs can be more expensive. So Islamabad would, would, be, an, would be an example. And where we have posts that, that house a lot of um, different agencies, we have different requirements to to meet that. Um, That's another question I'd like to dial into at some point. I know in Singapore there's some 19 different government agencies that have offices and personnel over there, and I would really love to know the purpose of those. And that may not be under your purview, but at some point over the next uh, few months, I'd love to, to see what those areas of responsibilities are. We, we'd be pleased to do that with, for you, Senator, at, at any of our posts. And I think when you travel, as you have to our to our embassies and our posts, and you have a chance to sit with the country team, you get a flavor for which uh, of the different um, uh, opportunities are having our agencies there um, make sense. But it is expensive, and we do have to work through what those requirements are. You, are. are you experiencing uh, serious overruns? Oh, that's really what I was going for. Uh, I think it depends on a case-by-case -case basis. I wouldn't say in general, because in some cases we have a budget, we go out, we bid, and we come under budget. Mm -hmm. In other cases, for various reasons, the costs are in excess of what we projected. Um, so it, it depends, and it depends on some circumstances, but we could we could provide you with our most recent um, set of construction uh, plans and budgets and, and provide some additional I don't need to see the plans. You. I trust you on that, but maybe the budget numbers. I meant budget plans. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Senator Murphy. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, welcome. Thank you for being here uh, again. Um, I, I uh, appreciate Senator uh, Purdue's conversation about what we can uh, afford to do um, uh, within the uh, limited resources we have to spend. I, listen, I would pose the opposite question. I, I think we have to ask our question how we can afford not to make these investments, especially when you put U.S. 
foreign aid and international development funding in the context of what our competitor nations are spending themselves. Uh, over the last 10 years alone, the Chinese have increased their foreign aid by a factor of seven at a time when our foreign aid has been largely flat. We are looking at a budget that is frankly $2 billion less than the FY10 enacted numbers, um, the Chinese have uh, increased their spending by a factor of seven. Um, in Egypt, a lot of commotion about turning back on $1.3 billion in U.S. military aid. Well, just at the beginning of this year, the Saudis announced a three billion, excuse me, eight billion dollar play uh, with money both from their public funds and their sovereign funds, a 20 billion dollar oil investment um, in uh, Egypt. And, you know, we sit here and wonder why we don't have as much influence there as some other countries do. It's in part because uh, other nations in and around that region are spending numbers that dwarf ours. And so I think we're at a moment in time where the United States is kind of an apple in a world full of oranges. The rest of the world has figured out that the sort of blunt, inflexible power of brute military strength um, isn't as effective as the flexible and nimble nature of economic aid, energy aid, political aid. And we are chasing our tail around the world in part because other countries, from China to the Saudis to the Russians, uh, are lapping us when it comes to uh, that kind of smart money. Um, and so we should just remember that as much money as we spend, we're still in the bottom quartile of OECD nations when it comes to the amount of money we spend on uh, international aid as a percentage of our GDP. Uh, so it's a big number, but we're a big country. And when you compare it to other nations, we're still, um, at least within uh, our subset of first world nations, um, in, the, in the bottom fourth. Um, so uh, with that being said, let me ask you about uh, one particular line item that's um, that's significantly lower in this proposed budget, and you can probably explain to me why. Um, in um, the FY16 omnibus appropriations bill, we had a significant increase for humanitarian assistance, um, and this is international disaster assistance, migration and refugee assistance, and food aid. But this budget from you proposes about a 17% cut. Um, I know that humanitarian aid doesn't matter any less uh, to the administration than it did in the last year. So just explain to me why we're looking at that cut and where that money is going to be made up. Thank you, Senator. We were very pleased that in the FY16 appropriations bill, we did receive a, a generous increase in humanitarian assistance. And as we looked to build this FY17 budget, um, cognizant of the um, Bipartisan Budget Act that set parameters for discretionary spending, uh, we looked across our needs over a period of two years and determined that with the uh, additional resources that were provided and with the request we've made for 17, we'll be able to meet our expected and anticipated expenditures. Um, I would note, though, that we, we did um, we are operating under the uh, discretionary top line uh, constraints, and we've had to make trade-offs. And while we think this is sufficient over when we look across these two years, um, I think in in as to your earlier points, there are trade-offs we've made that. Uh, that, that aren't exactly what we would want to do absent those constraints. And so I, we do feel confident about the funding level for humanitarian assistance across 16 and 17, but there are certainly needs we've had to make trade-offs for. I mean, just an example, one of those trade-offs is that the World Food Program uh, in and around Syria um, is cutting off aid to 
um, refugee families that don't live in the actual refugee camps. So if you're living out in the streets of Jordan or Lebanon, um, you are at risk of having your emergency food assistance cut off. It's one of the choices that we've all made. We don't have enough money to uh, fully fund that program. That has dire consequences for those families, uh, pushes many of them into the arms of the very groups that we're trying to fight. And so I understand the difficult trade-offs you have to make, but um, we should all be cognizant of the consequences to, um, to U.S. national security. Um, I want to drill down on one very specific issue, and, and, and that is um, the issue of um, procurement within the State Department. Um, you are subject to the Buy America law as well as other um, agencies, um, but just in preparation for this hearing, um, I was just going through the list of waivers that have been requested, and it's a pretty substantial list. And I understand this has sort of been a cause and a crusade of mine for years is to put some teeth back into our Buy America requirements. Um, I understand that you've got, uh, you know, t sort of two strings pulling on you here. You know, one you want to be a, uh, uh, you want to be a good guest uh, in country um, and do business in country, but you also do have a law that requires you to um, buy equipment if you can from U.S. companies. But you've submitted waiver requests for some pretty easy equipment to get from U.S. companies, vehicles, for instance, which are regularly being shipped uh, to the countries in which you're operating, uh, but you're often buying from in-state, uh, so from in-country sources rather than from American sources. Um, can you talk a little bit about your commitment to uh, the Buy America law and efforts that you may be able to take to reduce the number of waivers that are being granted to the State Department? We've got a lot of great U.S. companies that would like to supply the State Department um, and often don't seem to be getting the chance. Thank you, Senator. We take those responsibilities that we have seriously, and it, it gets back um, to a certain extent to the previous part of our conversation about resources. And any waivers that we would request, we would want to do so very judiciously. And, and Senator, would look forward to following up with you or your staff to talk a bit about how we think about this and how we would approach it. Um, but we want to do things in, in a way that abides by those requirements, but also takes into account our costs and how we do business overseas. And so we, weren't, we aren't looking for anything of a blanket nature. We want to do something very judiciously and selectively and would be pleased to follow up with you and ensure we would uh, that, that our request is understood and that we can answer your specific questions. I, I appreciate that. And the reason that we have the Buy America law is that for the individual agency, it's often going to make sense financially, fiscally, to buy from a cheaper non-American source. But the damage to the overall federal treasury and the lost jobs, the lost tax revenue, the increased Medicaid Costs, the increase on employment costs, um, pretty quickly wipes out the savings to the agency. So um, I, I'd be, be look forward to following up with you uh, on this issue. Thank uh, you very much. Certainly, Senator. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Senator Brasso. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Madam Secretary, thanks for being with us. You know, President Obama unilaterally pledged about $3 billion for the UN Green Climate Fund. Congress hasn't authorized, hasn't appropriated any funding for the new International Climate Change Slush Fund. Uh, the most recent fiscal year appropriations bill provided no funding for the UN Green Climate Fund, specifically prohibited the transfer of funds to create new programs. Uh, now, media is reporting this morning that the administration deposited $500 million uh, into the UN Green Climate Fund. Uh, it appears to be the latest example of the administration going around Congress because the American people don't really support what the President is doing with this initiative. So if the media reports are true, uh, this is a blatant misuse of taxpayer dollars. So first, did the administration deposit $500 million in the United Nations Green Climate Fund? 
Thank you, Senator. We have reviewed our authorities and made a determination that we can make this, um, this uh, payment to the Green Climate the, Fund. The question is, did the administration today, as announced, deposit $500 million into the Green Climate we, Fund? We signed an agreement with the, with the, with the uh, UN to do that, yes. Uh, excuse me, with the World Bank to do that. And wh So when was that done? Uh, yesterday. Okay. Tell me how the administration was able to divert and, pre and reprogram funds in order to meet the President's unilateral promise. Senator, we reviewed the authorities and opportunities available to us to do that and uh, believe we're fully compliant with that. I'd be happy to, to follow up with you and your staff. Well, that'd be good, because the United Nations Green Climate Fund is a new program. Given the Congress' prohibition of funding new programs, the question is what legal authority uh, that you and the State Department believe to have to make this, this uh, the transfer. And, you know, given the prohibition, do you agree that actions by the State Department officials violate the Anti-Deficiency Act, which comes with criminal and civil penalties? And I think you're going to have to deal with that. Thank you, Senator. We, we do not believe we're in violation of the Anti-Deficiency Act, and uh, clearly our lawyers and others have looked at our authorities and our abilities to do this, and we're happy to follow up with you. With regard to the UN Green Climate Fund, members of Congress are expected to be good stewards of taxpayer funds, uh, not be providing funding to agencies that's not needed. Well, it raises serious concerns then that the U.S. Department of State has at least $500 million sitting around in funding that's no longer needed for the purposes for which it was approved. Whether you have the legal authority or not to move it, you have chosen to move $500 million from programs for which it was approved. So if funding is no longer needed for the original purpose, then the money really should be returned to the U.S. Treasury. It's clear this committee must take a closer look at the State Department's entire budget uh, and resource allocation if millions, 500 million, of surplus funds intended for specific programs are suddenly available to, dis to be spent on other priorities. So I, my question is, what specific accounts were so overfunded, allowing you at the State Department to divert these funds to the United Nations Green Climate Fund? Senator, you mentioned uh, President Obama's pledge. We also included in our FY16 budget a request for funding for the Green Climate Fund, as we have in the FY17 budget. So as we do our budgeting process, we didn't look around and say, where are excess funds we can put to this? We built it into our budget request. And as we received the 16 uh, bill and made allocations of programs, we have the authority and the ability to fund that requirement. What exact accounts were then overfunded to be able to move the money out? Senator, nothing is overfunded. Uh, we looked across uh, the appropriations bills and made allocations based on what our budget was and what resources were provided to us. Well, you know, I, I firmly oppose what the president is doing here and this misuse, I believe, of, of taxpayer dollars, I think completely in violation of the law. And um, this will come to additional concerns raised to you and those who work at the State Department for this ma mismanagement. The, the United States national debt currently is $19 trillion. We're we have struggling communities across this country in need of help. There was a, a debate in Flint the other night, and I just think it's hard to explain to taxpayers in struggling communities across our country, even places like Flint, that this president and this administration is willing to give $500 million as a handout to foreign bureaucrats instead of addressing real problems here at home. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I have no additional questions. Thank you. I, I know that this is an issue that, you know, there's highly divergent views on the committee. Um, there could equally be something that, you know, um, people on this side of the aisle thought was semi-controversial. I, I do think it's, I think the questions asked about how money is transferred like that um, would be good for all of us to know, regardless of how we feel about this particular issue. And, uh, I, I do hope that 
something more forthcoming than what you just said uh, will be forthcoming so that we can understand that because it really sort of breaks down trust uh, in the process when monies like this can be transferred out and yet they're not appropriated and there's no program. So uh, I look forward to working with you on that. Mr. Chairman, I agree with you on that. I, uh, we should absolutely know that. But my understanding came out of the appropriated account. So I, I, I'm not sure there's a problem here. So we had appropriations no. for a green climate? No. We, we have authorities to make the payment that we did to the Green Climate Fund. And, and Mr. Chairman, to your point, we'd be pleased to engage with the members of this committee and talk further about that. Okay. Thank you. Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. That last line of questioning is probably one of the many reasons why a State Department authorization is so important. Uh, <laughs> let, me, uh, let me just uh, thank you and uh, Senator Cardin for focusing on this. This is something I wanted to do when I was chairman and we worked together to try to get there. I think it's one of the most important things the committee can do, which is basically, in the absence of it, we basically allow the State Department, with all their good intentions, to decide what is the course without congressional, you know, uh, uh, direction and oversight. And, uh, and uh, I think about the world uh, since 2002, which is the last time this body successfully uh, acted on reauthorizing legislation for the Department of the State. And we think about uh, the 9-11 attacks that claim uh, the lives of so many Americans on American soil. We think about Afghanistan and Iraq. But when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And the reality is, is that there is a lot more to our challenges uh, globally uh, than looking at everything with a hammer. From migration crises to global epidemics uh, to, regardless of your views, global warming, to attacks on U.S. facilities and deaths of foreign service officers, there is a, an incredible array of issues. And at least we should be equipping the State Department and USID to deal with these challenges, uh, even better to prevent them. But State and AID, in my view, aren't equipped, and that's one of the primary reasons we have witnessed the growing militarization of American foreign policy, because DOD is equipped and authorized to do much. And so we saw so much of what should be the foreign policy elements and statecraft uh, move from the State Department to the Department of Defense. And, you know, that's just, you know, the Department of Defense is great to defend the nation, but not to promote uh, our foreign policy. I think we should credit our diplomats and development professionals for their work, uh, which continues whether or not the Congress passes authorizing legislation. Uh, and certainly those who work uh, for you, Madam Secretary, and for the Department and for the nation, conduct the business of diplomacy and development despite the risks of life abroad out of patriotism and devotion and concern for future generations that characterizes the very best in American values. So I want to thank all the men and women of the State Department and USAID in particular, and I think the, our entire body should recognize those outstanding services. And what better way than to provide the resources, the guidance, and direction necessary to make this nation speak with one voice, albeit in the many different languages in which our diplomats converse. Now, I, I support the State Department's budget. I'd like to have this committee create some structure 
for it. I'm one of those who believe that this is a importantly powerful use of American uh, resources in a way that can generate far more successes than even the power of our bombs. Uh, but uh, I also think that the State Department needs to represent the diversity of the nation. And I am deeply disappointed. Uh, I've been working at this for 24 years from the House of Representatives where I sat on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and uh, in the 10 years I've been here, privileged to serve on this committee in the Senate. And we just really haven't made progress. We really haven't. And this has expanded over uh, multiple administrations, Republicans and Democrats alike. And one of the most diverse countries in the world, our potential is unlimited. And unfortunately, uh, minority communities have been historically underrepresented in both the State Department and USAID. Now, last year I authored language that Chairman Corker uh, included in the state authorization bill uh, that Congress unfortunately failed to enact. Uh, those provisions expanded Pickering, Wrangell, and Payne fellowships to target state and aid uh, and AID minority recruitment. It expanded mid and senior career recruitment programs and initiatives, such as the International Career Advancement Program and the Global Access Pipeline. It strengthened oversight through additional reporting requirements on employment promotion and attrition rates, in addition to data on selection boards, mentorship, and retention programs. All things I think are necessary to institutionalize in order to have the diversity of America that's so important. And just by way of example, it's not diversity for diversity's sake, Mr. Chairman. When I was in China, it was incredibly powerful to see a, one of our uh, diplomatic corps, an African-American who had gone through the struggles of the civil rights movement, talking to human rights activists and political dissidents in China. That was a powerful opportunity to have those who try to create change in China, change you and I and Senator Cardin, all of us would like to see. Uh, but that may not have come through the same experience as someone else. So at the same hearing last year, uh, Madam Secretary, you presented a picture of the State Department that was innovating new programs for recruitment, retention, and advancement for minority populations. And when we dug in, however, it was difficult to identify new initiatives as, exposed, as opposed to expansion of existing initiatives. So I'd like to dig in in my final minute here. Are there any new, really new programs, not, don't, not expansion. And I applaud that you've included in your budget requests some of what I tried to do in last year's State Department. I want to acknowledge that. But I, I just got the, I, after insisting a lot, I got the uh, State Department's latest diversity statistic for full-time employment employees as of December 31st, 2015. Senior Foreign Service Hispanic officers, 4.58%. Senior Executive Service, 2 0.6%. Foreign Service Generalist, 5.49%. Hispanic, 5.44%. African American. Foreign Service Specialist, uh, we do somewhat better there, 8.89% Hispanic, but of course that's a smaller universe, and 8.9% of African Americans. That is in progress. The Hispanic community in this country is growing and it already represents 13% of the overall American population. So can you speak to me about what we are doing? This is something I raised with you when you were up for your nomination and have raised since to change this reality. 
Senator, first, thank you for the, the words that you had for uh, our department and for the Foreign Service officers. It, it means a lot to them to hear um, people like you uh, compliment their work. Um, second, on, on the, the issue we've discussed before and that you've raised on the diversity of our workforce, um, you're right, we are expanding some of the things that we're doing because we've identified what things we think most effectively enhance the diversity of our workforce. So like you in, your, in, in the bill last year, we are trying to expand the Pickering and Wrangell fellowships because we see that as a particularly useful way of bringing in more diverse foreign service officers. The year-over-year -year data and the trends are good and moving in the right direction, but we can only hire to attrition in the foreign service. We're only bringing in a couple of hundred officers a year. And so it's going to take us a while um, to see uh, the impact of really bringing in a more diverse workforce. And I feel confident that we're moving in the right direction. We're not satisfied with it. We don't look at these numbers and say that we've accomplished our mission. And so we are, we're increasing our budget request by 50% to do some of those things. We're expanding, again, because we think it's effective and we've seen the data, the paid internship program that brings in underrepresented groups for two summers of service in the State Department and hopefully brings them into the process. Secretary Kerry has asked all of his assistant secretary level and above officers to do domestic recruiting trips coordinated with our diplomats and residents so we're hitting the right places and we're using the the tools that we have to make the progress that we need but we know we have a big challenge and that's bringing in more people but then ensuring that they stay and that they're in those senior leadership positions so we've just begun a partnership with the cox foundation to evaluate our mentorship and retention programs because again we want to make sure we're using the limited resources we do have in the most effective way so i'm encouraged that there's progress we're not satisfied with the result and we've made it a top priority for the secretary for um, for this administration and it's reflected in the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Re Review. And, and as always, Senator, want to take your good recommendations and advice as we try to do this work because we share the same objectives and, and share some of your frustration as well. Chairman, uh, just a comment. Uh, I appreciate your answer, but after 24 years, I've heard much of the same. That's two and a half decades almost. And this starts at the top, like any organization. If at the top, you say to those below you, I will judge you in part by how you create diversity within your bureaus and departments. Believe me, people will follow. And we just haven't had that commitment, so I look forward to working with you and the committee to make it happen, not for the diversity's sake alone, but for what it brings to our foreign diplomacy. If I could, before turning to Senator Gardner, I, I think, you know, let's face it, when you come in as Secretary of State, I mean, you're you want to be known for the diplomatic breakthroughs that you have. And it's rare that we end up having a Secretary of State that actually focuses on building uh, an apartment and the caring and feeding of the troops. I think we've had one or two in recent times over short periods of time. But that's why I think, you know, having a State Department authorization that stresses those things and by law forces those kind of things to be happening and then oversight here uh, matters a great deal. And I thank you again for leading that effort with diplomatic security on the front end and Senator Cardin and, and the rest of the committee caring about us seeing this through. Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, thank you for being here to testify today. I just want to follow up on a little bit of what Senator Brasso was talking about. Uh, did, did Congress approve the Green Climate Fund? 
Senator, as I said previously, we reviewed uh, with our lawyers the authorities we had and had made uh, provided resources in accordance with the authorities um, to meet what what right. Uh, what but the fund itself, doing. I mean, it went into an account. Did Congress approve that account that it went into? That we have the authorities that Congress provided us to make that payment. But did Congress approve it? The did Congress the account the what? Green they, Climate they Fund? They passed an appropriations bill that we've reviewed the authorities of and have used to make this payment. Well, if I understand how this works, money came out of somewhere, and where did it come from? The funding is from the economic support fund accounts. Which specific line items? There's a, the fund is a, the way the account works. It's and the not, economic support fund does what? It supports uh, programming in lots of different countries to, to address a lot of different issues related to economic growth and opportunity. So we took money out of there, $500 million, that, all that money came from that program? Correct. That, it's, it's, a, it's a very large account. And you account, put it some into of a... Excuse me, some of which is directed toward countries and programs, and others that the department has the authority to allocate as it sees, as it sees fit. And so the department sees that allocation as it sees fit to put it into a green climate fund that Congress did not approve. Congress provided us with the authority to make this payment. But let's be clear, Congress never approved a green climate fund, correct? We, pro we proposed a budget that included support for the green climate fund. We've reviewed our has authorities that budget been and determined... Has in the, FY16, we has proposed the a budget, budget we been received an appropriations bill uh, for FY16, and from those resources, reviewing our authorities, have determined we could make this contribution, which we have done. But the Green Climate Fund itself, now just yes or no, I mean, this is a pretty simple answer. Was it approved by Congress? Did yes Congress no? authorize the Green Climate Fund? No, it's a, it's not a... So, okay, so you did not authorize, so how then, Because if Congress did not authorize the Green Climate Fund, as you just said... How can $500 million go to it? Did you notify Congress of this? The, the, the payment that we made did not require a congressional notification in the traditional way that you would notify funds through an appropriations process. Notifications have been made. Why, why, why would it not require? The authority didn't require it. And, and Senator, we'd be pleased to provide to you and other members of this committee the, the legal well, analysis and rationale for how we did this. Of the, of the $54 billion that the State Department has received FY 2016, can all of that money be just reprogrammed by lawyers it's, at the department? The actual appropriation is $50 billion, not 54, but no, it can't. It I'm can't. sorry, so it's 54 point, excuse me, actual 54.59 is the actual in FY16 according to the documents we have from committee. Okay. So, it, it, no, no, there are certain accounts and, and um, provisions that have to be notified to Congress. Okay, so, so the Green Climate Fund was not authorized by Congress. No notification was given to Congress of this. When were you planning on notifying Congress of this? Uh, Senator, as I said, we've reviewed the authority and the process under which we can do it, and our lawyers and we have determined that we had the ability to do it. And, and I pledge to you and to other members, we're happy to provide that legal analysis and the additional details. So nothing is overfunded, you stated in your answer to Senator Brasso. But now you would then testify, I guess, with $500 million gone. Is the account that you just mentioned now underfunded? Uh, Senator, I wouldn't say it's underfunded. We proposed a budget that reflected a contribution to the Green Climate Fund. So as we allocated resources and plan for FY16, and we submitted a budget that actually we received an appropriation above. And so, no, we're not, we're not, uh, nothing's overfunded, and we... Uh, so nothing's overfunded, nothing's underfunded now. Is that what you're saying? Of course we have to make trade-offs in our budget all the time. Are we making them uh, because $500 million worth of So let me just out? ask you this, though. I, I mean, because I think this is the heart of the distrust between the executive branch and the legislative branch. And I'd say this no matter who's in the administration. I don't care what party they're in. 
The challenge is we have a constitution that makes it very clear that says appropriations are carried out by the legislative branch. And when you sit here before the American people and say that the Green Climate Fund was never approved by Congress and yet $500 million just went to it, I don't think that lawyers can replace the Constitution outside of the, the lawyers don't, they're, they're, they don't replace the constitutional requirements that Congress approved these funds, this appropriation. That money could have been, if, if there's money available, we've had arguments on the floor of the Senate for the past several weeks that Yes, this would take additional appropriations language. There's no doubt about it. But that $500 million could have then been put toward Flint, Michigan with the appropriate language. If this was money that was a trade-off that would have gone to other nations, what about putting that toward Flint, Michigan? Sure, it would require appropriative language. What about putting that money into an opiate bill that we talked about on the floor? Yes, it would take language by Congress to make that law happen. But here we are creating a, writing a $500 million check from an account in the State Department to create a green climate fund that Congress didn't approve when we've been having arguments about where we're going to spend this money. And I think if we wonder why the American people don't trust Congress, why they don't trust the administration, here's a perfect example of why. A couple of other questions for you. Um, I think in your testimony you stated that the, there was a breach of, and I'll quote, as the breach of our own unclassified email system in 2014 demonstrated our adversaries see information handled by the department and many other U.S. government departments and agencies as a desirable target. Protecting our information as we face increasingly sophisticated, frequent, and well-organized cyber attacks is one of the department's top priorities. How much money is State Department requesting in 2017 for cybersecurity efforts? Senator, I'll have to follow up and provide the exact um, amount, but we did ask for an increase, and we are undertaking several different lines of effort to improve the security and safety of our systems. We've already implemented several measures, and we are working across the interagency uh, with a team of, of, uh, of experts to both re-architect some of the aspects of our system to make our, our information more secure, and also ensure we're learning across the federal government the best tactics to provide security. So we did increase, we asked for uh, additional resources in our central IT fund to make some of those upgrades that we're planning. We've also looked across all of our systems, our consular systems, um, our, our unclassified open net system to identify those vulnerabilities, and I, I, I won't speak in more detail about them, but it's a very comprehensive act. How long did it take to completely root out the 2014 breach? I'm sorry? How long did it take to completely root out and, and figure out the 2014 breach? Uh, I don't have the exact amount of time, um, but we can follow up with you, and it may be appropriate to do it in a different setting. Thank you. Mr. Chairman. Thank you, sir. Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for being here, Deputy Secretary Higginbottom. And I, along with the rest of the committee, look forward to hearing the um, explanation for how you were able to transfer funds into the Green Climate Fund. But I have to say that I, for one, am very glad that the United States is taking action to address climate change. I'm very pleased that we joined more than 180 other nations in Paris to come to an agreement to address climate. Um, in my home state of New Hampshire, we are experiencing one of the warmest winters with the least snow we've ever seen. It's having an impact on our ski industry. It's having an impact on our wildlife. It's having an impact on our energy use. And for those people who don't think we should be taking action to address climate change, um, I hope they would look at the science and 
um, recognize that this is a very important issue and it's very important for us in the administration and in Congress to address it. So thank you very much. Um, I want to ask about the strategy behind the new Global Engagement Center, which has replaced the Counterterrorism Strategic Communications Center. Um, because one of, I sit on both the Armed Services Committee and this committee, and one of the things that has come up repeatedly has been the ability of our enemies, whether it be ISIS or um, other foreign powers, to use propaganda to promote their goals. And when, when I ask questions about what we're doing in response to that, it's very hard to get an answer that acknowledges the coordination that needs to go on and how various departments and agencies are working together to address this concern. So can you talk about that, and can you also talk about how this engagement center is going to work with the Department of Homeland Security, how you're gonna work with efforts in the Department of Defense to respond to both countering violent extremism and the other um, propaganda efforts that are underway? Yes, thank you very much, Senator. Um, we took a hard look at, at the work that we were doing to counter violent extremist messaging and propaganda, and in partnership with um, uh, the private sector and others, determined that we didn't have the right approach. It wasn't as effective as we wanted it to be. And so the Global Engagement Center, which is being led by a former assistant secretary from the Department of Defense, is really about building partnerships uh, with both the private sector and countries around the world, because we recognize that while we have an important role to play in developing some content and working with our partners, we're not always the best deliverer of those messages, and we need to bring other people into this effort, and that's a big uh, part of the approach. And as you point out, um, this is a, a government-wide effort, both countering violent extremism, but also in the messaging. And so ensuring that this model is really about building the partnerships and communication coordination and getting the messages, the appropriate messages out, delivered by the right people are the more effective messengers. So we've really, really changed how we're doing this work and, and in, in making this uh, shift, consulted with some of the experts um, who, who uh, in Silicon Valley and other places who are very engaged in how you reach people over social media and have brought those lessons learned into this as well. And so do we have any um, recent success stories that we can speak to or specifics about how this is actually getting done? Senator, I hope we will soon. We have a lot of success stories about the sort of hub and spokes that we're establishing in different parts of the world, Southeast Asia and the Middle East, um, to be our partners. Um, but we are just now standing up with um, Assistant Secretary Lumpkin and, and, and his team, the real work. But we've laid a lot of the groundwork, so I hope we can update you soon with some more specific examples of the success we're having and why this approach is the right one to take. And, and I know that the Broadcasting Board of Governors is designated as an independent agency, but clearly they are doing work that's very important to this effort, and the more coordinated we can be, the more successful we will be. So can you talk about how, um, how what this new center will be doing, will be working with BBG on their efforts? 
Thank you, Senator. The Undersecretary for, um, political, uh, for Public Diplomacy, Rex Stengel, is on the BBG board and very engaged with their efforts and, and also leading our effort with Michael Lumpkin uh, on the Global Engagement Center. So we have good coordination and means of communication there. It is an independent agency, but certainly we should understand all the tools at our disposal and it's in all of our interest uh, to be engaged in this. So there's a good way for us to communicate and to do it in a way that is appropriate given their independent nature. Um, I, I want to go back and pick up on the issue that Chris Murphy raised, or Senator Murphy raised, about the refugee situation, because um, as we look at the increasing numbers of refugees, the threat that that poses to Europe, to the EU, as we look at the challenges that our allies, Jordan and Lebanon and Turkey, are having with their refugee camps, um, I would urge that we should be increasing those budgets rather than decreasing them, because if if one of our allies in the Middle East who has significant numbers of refugees um, falls apart because of the numbers of refugees in that country, it's going to be a whole lot more expensive than increasing the funding that we have can make in those humanitarian efforts and providing the food and assistance that they will need. So can you speak to what more we ought to be doing uh, to address that? Thank you, Senator. Our approach has been both, the United States is the largest contributor of humanitarian aid in the world, and we don't see any scenario in which that's likely to change in the short term. But what we have recognized from the President to the Secretary on down is that to really deal with the scale of the crises that we're facing right now, we need more people to be, more countries to be supporting the UN system, the humanitarian system, as well as to accept refugees, we, even those countries that are doing a lot already. And certainly some of those that you mentioned, Jordan, Lebanon, others are really on the front lines. But a lot of countries are doing a lot and we need even those countries to step up and do more. And the president will be uh, working as well the secretary to engage uh, their colleagues around the world to try to get those commitments. And we see that as, as really the, the important step, both making the system more efficient, uh, aligning uh, ourselves so that the, the UN system can, can be even more effective, but also trying to get additional countries into this space in whatever way they can. For some, it's providing education and training opportunities. Others would be accepting refugees uh, and certainly uh, humanitarian aid as well. Well, and I certainly support that effort, but it's hard to have conversations with some of the countries that we're calling upon who come back and say, well, you know, the United States is accepting a very small number of refugees. The United States has not been willing to support, you know, Lebanon, 25% of its population, for example, are refugees. So to say to a country like that, um, you need to be doing more, I think, given our size, given our um, budget, it's hard to make that argument in a way that really is heard as being serious. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Cardin, I know I had a, some additional comments and questions. Well, uh, some comments, Mr. Chairman. Thank you again for this hearing. And uh, the bottom line is we need to pass an authorization bill. And I just really, in regards to the Climate Fund, I, I, I just really want to make a couple statements. First, I agree with you on transparency and information to our committee. I fully support that and think we need to be kept uh, totally apprised. Climate change is a huge issue for the security of America. Uh, what happened in Paris with 190 nations coming together was a, a major milestone. 
As we move forward, we need to find a bipartisan path where we support these efforts. And many of us who strongly support what the administration is doing have reached out and will continue to reach out so that we can have a bipartisan um, support for America's leadership on this issue. It's important to our national security, as our military has suggested. It's also important for our environmental legacy and our economic future. Having said that, the legal authority in regards to supporting the Climate Fund was never in doubt. Uh, I just, re just remind the committee in the discussions on the omnibus appropriation bill, this was an issue that was in, in discussion of President's authorities, and it was clear that he would, his authority would not be limited. And it's not unusual to use these funds to contribute to international efforts. This is not a U.S. fund. This is an international fund. This is not something that we created, that the President created. It was international efforts. We've contributed international refugee efforts that have been named, and we have not authorized specifically appropriations to those funds. The administration uses its legal authority that it has on appropriated funds. So I don't think this is that unusual, except it is controversial. I would agree with the chairman, and I would urge that uh, the chairman's advice on transparency be adhered to, because I agree with the chairman on that point. Well, thank you very much. and. Uh, uh Senator Cardin, I appreciate that, and I appreciate, uh, appreciate you being here today. Um, I know there's a lot of work that we have to do together to craft something that uh, um, we can actually uh, put into law. Your testimony today has been helpful towards that end. We appreciate it, and we look forward to you continually working with us until we get something across the finish line. I know there'll be numbers of questions uh, by other members, and if you could, first of all, the, the Without uh, objection, the record will be open through the close of business Thursday. If you could get back fairly quickly with responses, we'd appreciate it. And again, uh, we thank you for your and the people who are with you, your service to your to our country. And uh, with that, the meeting is adjourned. Thank, thank you. you, Mr. Chairman. Good